Welcome. Thank you. Welcome to April. <laughs> you know, the song I was singing before this doesn't really go with this tune. No, it doesn't. I was singing, are you ready for the summer? Are you ready for the good time? I'm times? sure we could have them make that <laughs> tune and you can I'm sing it. Sure. I'm sure Mannequin Uprising can make whatever song you need, honestly. But hello and welcome. Today on the show, we are actually going to discuss uh, Will Smith, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Chris Rock and what happened at the Oscars later in our main segment of the show. But first, the first thing I want to do is... Oh, no, not yet. (laughs) She wishes. She wishes it was all horror facts with Kat. You know, you could do a spinoff if you want. Just sit in a room. It's a lot of work. And sit in a room and do trivia. (laughs) Oh my God. I would have like one listener myself. <laughs> you might. You might have that one, which would be fine. I mean, whatever. An audience of one is more than zero. The first thing I wanted to do was talk about owning the all new Scream movie on 4K Ultra HD and Blu ray, starring Nev Campbell, David Arquette, and Courtney Cox. Scream is certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Own it today and get killer bonus content, including interviews with the cast, deleted scenes, and much more. Directed by Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillette, rated R from Paramount Pictures. We are going to be doing our own giveaway of some of those Blu-rays on our Instagram. So look out for that because we were given a few copies. Excellent. Yes. I like when we get things. I do too. It's fun and I like to give them away. Because that's how we roll. I believe you had an event also that you wanted to mention. I'm so excited because it is April. And you know what that means, Shannon? That means we're halfway to Halloween. (laughs) I know. I saw Shudders doing the halfway to Halloween event. (laughs) And so is Reign of Terror. Nice. So Reign of Terror is a haunted house that I've talked about on the show before that Shannon has yet to go to. And I think you might be gone for this event unfortunately okay but um if you are living in the los angeles area or southern california area the reign of terror is doing a halfway to halloween on friday april 22nd and saturday april 23rd i talk about this haunted house quite a bit because it's to me it's a best kept secret and i love 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 to promote um just like the mom and pop companies that really do such a great job um so if you have not done it or you have done it and you didn't know that they were doing a halfway to halloween please uh support them go i'm thinking about going if i can get out that weekend yeah i just wanted to throw that out there nice 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 we will be going to Monster Palooza in June, however. We are. The first weekend of June. So if you happen to be local or that's something that you would travel for and you want to meet up with us, I think we're going to try to meet up with people if y'all are around. But just hit us up on any of our social medias or our email or what have you and say, hey, I'm going to that event. Would love to you know, shake your hand. Then let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. We'll have our terror talk. I mean, I, I'll probably wear my shirt. <laughs> She's a Yes. You probably will. Yeah. She's really good at that. Yeah. Yes. And we'll have uh, stickers and stuff to give people and all of that. You know, we'll do the thing. The thing you're supposed to do. They may even throw them at you. Meet the... (laughs) It's possible. You know, like those t-shirt guns? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen! Listen to our show! (laughs) I'll I'll just be launching out of that with the shirts and throwing them. Hopefully somebody catches you. I fit in one of those things. I am not going to be the one probably to catch you. Firing me out of the cannon, probably. I could probably fire you out of it, load you up with those stickers. That's a vision. It's something I'd really like to recreate now, but I know that that would be harmful (laughs) to your physical (laughs) nature, so maybe not. I'll wear a helmet. (laughs) I did want to share... One of our, I don't know, this segment has at the top of the show has become like weird and wonderful, freaky shit is basically. We talk about mannequins and stuff. I know. So I found this article. It's called The Youngest Mother in Recorded History Gave Birth at Five Years Old. I'm sorry. Yeah. The story of Lena Medina and how her case broke the rules of biology. So let me just share this with you all. Lena Medina's, I love that name, by the way, parents knew something was off about her stomach. The swelling was clearly getting worse. So this is a family that lived in a small village in Peru, and Lena was one of nine children. And 
So something goes wrong with her stomach. Obviously, they take her to the doctor. They ran some tests and were stunned, really, to learn that she was six months pregnant, which means she got pregnant when she was four years old. So obviously outrage, but also medical curiosity was <laughs> in line. Mm-hmm. And in the summer of 1939, Lena gave birth at just five and a half years old, okay. meaning she had become pregnant at four years old, right? And I'm reading this on medium.com. There's an author named Sean Kernan, and that's where I originally found the story. And then I kind of went into a little bit of a rabbit hole to find some other facts. But So she delivered this healthy son named Gerardo via C-section, as you might imagine, because she was nowhere near being able She's to pass the size a child. of a baby. She wouldn't be able to pass a child through her hips. Like no. y- you get larger hips when you get older. There have been other young children who've become pregnant like this over time. It's obviously not something that anybody talks about necessarily, but also way back in time, it was more common. So the stories are mostly grim, of course, with babies dying and children dying in the in the process because C-sections weren't widely used. And so they weren't as experienced with C-sections as they are now. Mm-hmm. You might be asking how the hell does a four-year-old, how are they even able biologically to get pregnant with mm-hmm. what we know about needing to have your period and mm-hmm. be of age to um, have eggs dropping and all the right. science behind getting pregnant. So most of the trained pediatricians, immediately actually knew how she could have become pregnant. It's because it's a rare condition called precocious puberty Mm -hmm. and it's genetics. And it's basically that she had already had a period at the age of three. This is so interesting. I just had a client share with me the other day that she had precocious puberty. So it's very weird that we're talking about this. It happens like that, right? Mm We, we all, she wasn't that young, but she was young. We often don't talk about like the articles and different things that we each bring to the show. And then as you guys know, it's often like, Oh, Hey, I know a thing about that. The condition actually happens one in 5,000 to 10,000 children, but is more common in girls. So that seems like wildly common to me. One yeah. in 5,000 or 10,000 children. Yeah. Like what? Now I've known a lot of people who've gotten their period, what I would consider early, like 10, nine, right. 10. I meet children like that in my, in my work, but three. Oh. Yeah. So it's extremely rare. But it was a very well-documented case because um, the the child was actually born. And Do we know who offended this child? Well, I think no. But so let me just do one thing really quick. Her son Gerardo grew up alongside his mother, not knowing that she was his mother. Sister. Exactly. Mother. Yeah. Thought she was the sister Mm -hmm. and actually it was his mother until he was 10 years old and they told him about it. The That's how cases- Ted Bundy started. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, most of the cases of these kinds of things are from a really long time ago. Unsurprisingly, there was, of course, pressure to find the abuser, which, of course, was Kathy's first question. Like, who did this to this person? Of course, that's what you're all asking. Police and doctors interviewed Lena repeatedly in hopes of identifying him. However, Lena could never provide any specifics. I mean, she was three years old. She either didn't know who he was or she'd been coached, obviously, to not say anything. There was speculation she'd been abused at an annual festival where rape was really common. But this theory was later dismissed. Uh, Lena's father was initially arrested, actually, on charges of rape. But after being held for several days, he was released as there wasn't any evidence. Statistically, the odds are high, of course, that the abuser was someone close to the family. Sure, that trusted them with the baby. If not an actual family member. So it was either, I'm not sure of the culture in Peru in the 1930s, but if there was a lot of extended family around or if there was a lot of community group, you know, community helping each other or even just a large family. She was one of, she was one of nine. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining there was a culture of large families. So Mm -hmm. it it is hard to know. Uh, So even if they knew it was the father convicting him would have sent the sole earner to prison of an already poor family. So there was no motivation, of course, to with nine kids, there's just no motivation to figure out Mm -hmm. and really go down that road road Mm -hmm. because, you know, of course there was a lot of unwanted attention. It did get a lot of press at the time. There was international pressure to figure out what this was like. The story just broke all over the world. Sadly, they, those kinds of cases, I guess were more common than we would know. But I will tell you that, 
just so you're aware, Lena was able to get an education, get a job as a secretary, live a life. She was a rel- had a relatively good career. Uh, later in life, she married and had another son. Mm-hmm. She was able to provide him with an education and a better life than, of course, her first son. Mm-hmm. And she's still alive today mm. at 88 years wow, old. Wow, 88. Yeah. She lives in a, a relative privacy and, you know, lived a full life. Mm-hmm. And so was not ruined by the incident, mm-hmm. which I think is just a testament to her resilience. And, totally. And, her, and whatever support she did have. Mm-hmm, and just being a true survivor. So. Yeah. That's amazing. I wanted to share that story with you because I, when I read it, I was like, wait, what? Yeah. You know, just something you sort of don't ever think about. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And, you know, the next thing we would like to do is a little segment, unless you had something else. Oh, no, I just, that's, that's, uh, we're, I mean, what an abrupt change now. Yes. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Weird and wonderful. I'm ready for it. Well, then here we go. The heart from the 80s version. <laughs> Nancy Wilson. <laughs> That's what happened right there. Poor Nancy. I, I, <laughs> she just got compared to my voice. Okay. <laughs> I think she could take it. Nancy or Anne. Yeah. Okay. So I'd just like to throw out there that we do have a Discord member question on this one. So once again, at the end, you can guess All right. which one. Okay. And who it was. Okay, got it. Number one, this horror director is also an accomplished composer. Their unique music style is often credited as the inspiration for an entirely new subgenre of music. This director is also known for making comic books. Okay. Number two, music, <laughs> music in horror films is strategic. Some composers may refer to it as where math meets music. High-pitched, non-linear noise and dissonant intervals generate feelings of unease. Low drone sound and singing children are two others. Historically, these have been referred to as, get a choice here, A, the devil's interval, B, Satan's soliloquy, (laughs) Or C, horror hymns. <laughs> okay. Those are all quite catchy. I know. <laughs> Number three. This film by David Lynch was originally titled Garden Back and was a surrealist story about adultery. Got it. Or don't got it. But I wrote it down. <laughs> Number four. What did Romero shoot Night of the Live? I'm sorry. Why did Romero shoot Night of the Living Dead in black and white? Hmm. Number five, while filming The Wizard of Oz, 16 year old Judy Garland was put on a strict diet of what to suppress her appetite? Well, that's all over the place, too. We're all over the place. We're all over the place, <laughs> which I feel is. is I don't, see, I don't see it as all over the place. I see it as like weird shit. Well, and I mean, you need random facts. I'm just saying random weird shit is yeah. pretty much our wheelhouse, it feels like, honestly, most of the time. Yes. All right. We'll be right back. After this break, we're going to discuss, well, what happened in the Oscars? Will and Chris, we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So I know you were watching the Oscars in 2022 just a little bit ago live when Mm -hmm. this happened, right? I was not watching them live, but of course, as soon as it happened, it was all over whatever I was doing. Mm -hmm. So what was your, 
What's your we take were, on it? It was a really bizarre moment. I, I at first I couldn't tell if it was staged. That was my first thought. Was like, oh, they they're doing publicity. They're staging yeah, it because even the slap or the punch or whatever it was sounded canned. Mm-hmm. And so, I think what was really bizarre, and I could tell by everybody's response around him that people were even like, was that real? They what were, is going on? The whole on? place went silent, right? Whole place went silent. And, but it was. I, I was just sharing this with you before we were recording. Here is it was the most bizarre moment in live television that I've ever personally witnessed. And we don't really watch a lot of things live anymore. And mm-hmm. obviously there's a little bit of a delay um, unless you live in Japan because they got it entirely uncensored, which is really interesting to watch if you get a moment to watch that because you really get more of Will's rage and his upset. And, and what I even saw as like a dissociation to be quite honest with you, especially when he received his award. But when it happened, um, I know that Chris Rock and Jada have bad blood from the past and that he's roasted her on other, on award shows in the past, but it's Chris Rock and he roasts everybody. He does. <laughs> That's part of like, he does. you know, if he's going to host, you're going to get it. When it initially happened, everyone was laughing. Right. And, and right. Will was laughing. And Will was laughing. And, but Jada was not laughing. And when Will kind of looked over, you know, Jada, and this is what most people have seen is, you know, Jada kind of looked at him like, you better not be laughing at this, right? Yeah, she corrected him behaviorally by giving him a look. Mm-hmm. Which I've seen her do before. Well, there was one things. time when he slapped a reporter a while back. He slapped a reporter. He was initially laughing. She was not laughing. Yeah. He realized she wasn't laughing and yeah. then he slapped the report. So it's a kind of a reenactment of that. Yeah. So we've clearly seen some of this before. So my initial reaction was, um, I, I, to be quite honest with you, I didn't, I didn't know what side to take when I first saw it because I'm like, okay, a couple of, of things just to throw out there. And most people know this some of the stuff I'm going to say people have read and they know this already, but give a little context is, you know, Jada has been really open about the fact that she has, you know, issues with hair loss and she's been very public about that. And when I was looking up some stuff around that, and, and again, when I say this, my disclaimer is I am not at all saying that I'm an expert in this or that I understand what this feels like. This is based on things that I've read and I'm really just trying to report this as neutral as I can. My understanding is that propecia is common um, in African-American females. I think it's alopecia. Or alopecia, sorry. Mm -hmm. Alopecia um, is pretty common with black women, African-American women, and um, something that's been a like a, a common struggle for a lot of women in that community. It's awful. Yeah, and I and I didn't know that. So nor um, did I, and that's awful. It's good right. to know though. And so I know that she's been open about that. At the same time, you know, again, it's like, and for I, someone who makes their living with their looks, right? Yes. Yeah. At the same time, you know, she does look absolutely gorgeous with oh her my head shape. She looks right? amazing. She doesn't have like she looks amazing no matter what she does. I know. honestly, but. But alopecia, a lot of people, I was talking to my hairdresser about this and she said what's really interesting and almost like perfect about Jada's is that some people who have it, they have like patches and it's really like even when they shave their head, hers is like perfect. I mean, she looks gorgeous, right? She looks amazing. And so when Chris Rock said that, my first thought was... G.I. Jane's a badass, first of all. Oh, I know. I he could have like, said that's a, cra- so, that's that's like a compliment. compliment. <laughs> yeah. So it's like he didn't call her something that was degrading or whatever. He's also done his own documentary, Good Hair, about black women. So I'm not, it's not that I'm immediately defending him, but my first thought was, was that really the worst thing he could have said? And did it warrant that kind of response? Then I watched Chris Rock and I had a lot of empathy for him and a lot of respect for the way that he completely, uh, you know, he trusted Will so much that when Will came at him, he was just laughing and thinking he was going to make he, a joke and of his it. Body language leaned into he Will. He was open to it because he thought Will was going to like make a joke of it too. That's and right. Like, and do something fake or phony. Like he, it was he, such a cheap tell, shot. And you could tell he was like all that footage at right afterwards. You could tell he was just like mortified and humiliated. mortified, embarrassed, sad. sad. Mm-hmm. And then you see Will's body language completely like his hands are clasped the rage the way that he was able to turn around compose himself and sit down and that's when he starts he keeps going 
after all of this, and I had time to sit back on it, the way that I saw this moment, and this is a snap in time, is Will was reacting to what he believed was going to get him out of the most trouble in that moment. It was impulsive. He was reacting to her. Here he was in the limelight, outshining her, getting the Oscar, and she really wasn't getting any attention by being there. Now, if Jada at all has narcissistic qualities, which we all do to a certain degree, was he having to make up for a couple of things there? And was there something he was concerned about with his own, I don't know, well-being if he got home and he didn't do what he did? Yeah, we don't know, of course, but it does paint a picture just, you know, and I'm not excusing, by the way, I'm not excusing that as the reason to hit Chris. No, no. Yeah. And, I, and no, I, we don't know what's going on in their relationship, except for the fact in the last couple of years, we know a lot more about what's going yeah. on in their relationship because they've been sitting on Jada's table talk uh, show and talking about the troubles that they had with their relationship and the separation that they had and the events that took place during that separation and all of the stuff and how they're trying to continue to have their family be intact. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they've been very out about a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, what you're saying is if, if we are to read into that, a situation where there's possibly a more narcissistic personality and possibly a more codependent personality, the codependent personality in that, um, is going to feel shame of getting that look. Yep. And realize that whatever's gone on in their relationship, maybe there was feedback around like protect me, don't don't sell me out type of thing. Maybe yeah. there was that kind of feedback, and we're again we're we're sort of like just making this up, but that's how it read. And then he's got to do something because what I saw is when he sat back down, there's this angle. You know, later of course the media is like digging up all the angles of everything, right? Yeah. And so there's an angle of her actually laughing uh, at some point there's an angle of him when he first sits back down Mm -hmm. and they have a tight shot on him Mm -hmm. and he looks like he is about to burst into tears absolutely and feels that shame immediately he realizes he just walked up and did that and it was so impulsive and dissociative like you said yeah and so driven by whatever he was driven by we nobody knows but will but like he just looks mortified with himself honestly He, he did and even when he went to um say his speech, which was six minutes long and really made no sense that it felt very dissociative to me. So I want to add one piece to this that gives us a little bit more context. What we know about Will is that he did grow up with a very abusive father and he did watch his mother get beaten. And he's talked about this duality of his father that he grew up with that was very confusing. So the way my understanding is that his father was an alcoholic, he was physically abusive. Will went into entertainment to heal through comedy, to bring that to his family. Um, my understanding is that's a, that was a big drive and component is, is to, you know, we become the class clown, right? If sure. there's tragedy. Sure. And so he describes his father as there's this one side of this man who is incredibly abusive and he had to sit back and, and watch his mother get beaten. Yet when his father, his father showed up to every game he played, showed up to every award ceremony sober. It was really weird. It was like he experienced two very different personalities. So grew up with a very conflicted Right. And so the way that I see this, if we even remove Jada's input at all, there's two things to me that went on that night. One, the way that he protects his wife is a version of protecting his own mother. Two, everything that he had worked for, everything that he had wanted was there that evening and he sabotaged it by becoming his father. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's a lot, it's very deep and we don't know for sure. These are no. all, this is all theoretical, of course. but these are some of the things that I've thought about that, you know, the whole situation is very complex. 
Yeah, and I mean that that is what we do, right? It was we try to find the what's underneath the action. That's kind of the idea is is in the depth of it and the complexity of it because it isn't a black and white thing. You can read all over Twitter like some people are for Rock, some people are for Smith, mm-hmm. some people are vilifying Jada, some people are like right. all of those opinions are represented right. in the zeitgeist. Right. And so, yeah, my thought was, it's just, of course, it's a lot deeper than that. Mm-hmm. And of course he is replaying those childhood dynamics. And absolutely is he all over the place because he's having a trauma response. Oh my gosh. You could tell. You could tell he was having a trauma response. If you've, if you've never investigated your own trauma responses, especially with shame. And if you have a narcissistic parent, you definitely have a shame button because you're, your codependent issues perhaps or and or your ability to have a narcissistic defense which is very different from being a narcissist is very well developed because with a narcissistic parent you're not nar- you can be seen as a narcissist but what it is is a narcissistic defense mm-hmm. so when you get in your trauma reaction let me just be clear about the difference is that when you have a trauma reaction you can appear narcissistic narcissistic Mm -hmm. and and you're having a shame response and it's a defense not that you are a covert or malignant narcissist yeah and so Mm -hmm. that's kind of what i saw in it was that he was having a shame response absolutely and that some people might read that that as him being the narcissist Mm -hmm. in the situation but given his childhood it sounds to me like he was having a trauma response because then right after that you see now it's all come out of course denzel and tyler perry and denzel prayed with him and Mm -hmm. they stood around and i'm sure that was very emotional for him too but he was still dissociated he was still in crisis and then by the time he got up to do the speech you know, he's talking about, you know, he was trying to correlate with, with his role, right? Mm-hmm. And then he was also trying to say, you know, love makes you do crazy things and, and all of that. Uh, and it's and like, that, that and it's statement. Like, oh, super cringy, right? It's like, cringy because it's something an abuser says. I know. Right? I and know. and he I just came off like the bad guy. He did. And I think I had a conversation with a colleague of mine. Not who, that his behavior wasn't No, n- no. Negative. But, but again, his behavior versus his character, right? right. And we're kind of looking at, is this really who he is? And clearly none of us know unless we're in his family or best friends with the guy. But my I'm totally in alignment with what you're saying, Shannon. It's because when you when it's someone who's truly the narcissist in my eyes and what I've seen, even if I'm in court against these guys, I see someone who isn't going to have that level of overt shame and empathy and apology instantaneous because to me it didn't it felt it did not feel disingenuous he felt he appeared what the hell did I just do and now I'm trying to formulate words now I'm trying to apologize to the Williams family in one breath and then trying to compare himself which I'm like don't go there because their father never hit anyone right it was such a mess that he was trying to clean up this mess and he made it worse. His speech went on for six minutes. He's saying, I'm trying to be a vessel. You protect your family. It was like too soon for him to be. And he was in total crisis trauma mode. And I agree. I don't think that he necessarily, I don't think it was a narcissistic move, but his defenses, something, when he got up, it was almost like something is completely driving him unconsciously. Yeah. It, it like, like someone it read was like moving that him across the stage. It read like that completely. And what we know about accepting an Oscar, which everybody says, is that they're, they don't remember the moment. They don't remember what they said. So even in an average moment, when you're not traumatized and you haven't just what, probably felt like ruined your career and maybe there there's definitely going there's definitely some consequences to what he's done but even when you're not having all of that it's a moment people don't remember and they disassociate and it's a flash they have all everybody says that like oh god i don't even remember what i said it was so crazy like i i i was so nervous and it was so out of this world and so surreal so given that plus you're in a crisis You've just done something that you are ashamed of because I saw the shame all over him. And I don't think like an average narcissist that he was ashamed of 
necessarily just how it looked. Yeah, what people thought. What people thought. That was part of it. We all would be ashamed sure, of that. Of like, oh fuck, what have I done to my I career? Wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten out of bed the next morning. And everybody thinks say. I'm an asshole yeah. now. And and I am. To the I, whole world. And I was violent on top. Mm-hmm. Like, what am I doing? Like, right. uh, you would have that shame. But I don't think it was just about that. It was like, I'm my father. I am my... Mm-hmm. Whatever those contextual mm-hmm. things are that, of course, I'm not putting words in his mouth. Yeah. But whatever that was... Oosh. It, yeah yeah i felt for him because that movie was fucking awesome oh and he was so incredible in it i, know, I also I've... felt bad for the best documentary that got completely ignored because yeah. everybody was still going yeah what just happened well and sam jackson got his first oscar i know i mean and, and, and it that just was would like be the news man like that's yeah. the news to me like a vet this guy is so f- there's just so many things i would rather be reading about with the oscars but of course we know this is how it goes <laughs> plus i've read that and and i'm not saying it's wrong i'm not saying it isn't the natural and logical consequences for his behavior but like there's all kinds of rumors about you know <laughs> there's some project called fast and loose that now has slowed down development that he was going to be doing there's the bad boys franchise that they're now slowing down or maybe he might get fired from it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and he resigned from the academy. He resigned from the academy. I'm sure there, there are repercussions in his personal life, obviously in his professional life. Oh, yeah. And I saw that Chris Rock had a comedy gig like the next week or whatever. And he, what he basically said was, because of course the crowd comes out and wants him to do an hour on that. And he basically said, I don't have a lot of shit on what just happened. Cause I have a whole hour of material that I've been working all over the country. So if you're, if you came here to, to hear that i don't have so i'm going to address that but i'm going to address it at the end and i'm still processing what happened sure. so there isn't a lot for me to say right now and I'm, then he just went on and did his gig so and i think that's fair i think that's mm-hmm. actually someone who's not in a trauma response right in other words rock's reaction to it while I'm sure he experienced trauma being slapped on national television and, and not maybe in that moment knowing what he did to deserve it, except be himself and do the job he was hired to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, offend somebody because that's what he does. Mm-hmm. Honestly, he's, you know, you've seen the star's reactions on the Oscar when he and says like something. I said, there they are, always look at him like, oh, fuck. And there are me. worse things he could have said. Oh, my gosh. Way worse things. So. But yeah, I mean, I I think he's not, he wasn't in that kind of unconscious trauma response. He was in a very conscious trauma response of this is traumatic and I'm going to have to recover from this and I'm Mm -hmm. embarrassed. But he he was balanced about it. I think Mm -hmm. even after it happened, he was like, Will Smith just bitch slapped me on television. Like all he did was just state what had happened and he was kind of laughing about it. And I think that's all you can do. He was, I, I'm still so impressed by the way that he handled himself and went right into script after that. And you could see his eyes were watering. Like he it's the looked, best way to go, really. Yeah, he looked like he was on the verge. I mean, that's a true performer, right? Get he off just, the damn stage, right? <laughs> like do your job and then go out, go back oh my and God. I mean, cry. He, his eyes were watering probably because it hurt for one, but I then two, just singing, the, yeah. the humiliation. And, and then also like, I think, you know, one of the things they're talking about too is if this would have been, I don't know, like a Russell Crowe or, you know, someone that's deemed to be more of like a, an, an asshole, would they have escorted him out? And, uh, you know, they're, they're looking back at that now. And I know people are upset with the Academy of how did we let him go sit back down and then receive his award? That was so interesting because my first reaction was, oh, they're going to take his award away. Me too. I And he was at the part Vanity Fair party that night with his family Carrying his Oscar and right, because I still think he was in that mania. Yeah, I do too. And I'm wondering, I mean, is there, and it's a question, not an answer, is really, is is, is there an understanding that he's a good guy and this was a bad moment? Like we're kind of saying. Yeah. You know, it, it sounds to me like there is an understanding of that. He doesn't have a reputation for being like violent against everybody type no. of thing he's obviously slapped reporters before yeah, as i he's mentioned pushed, before he's pushed them away he's but the one guy Most stars have yeah i mean this one guy too that came up that they're like showing this viral one right now where this guy mm. comes up and hugs him and he pushes him away and then he kind of like just lightly slaps him like like stop i'm sitting here going well why does that guy think it's okay to throw himself at will like, like if i'm on the street and someone comes up and does that to me i'm gonna push him away. i'm gonna push him away and probably hit him too if he yeah, keeps coming that's right it's a behavioral sign 
from any being. They're now because they're now they're what they're doing is they're trying to, of course, just like politicians, they're trying to find the smallest things to create a larger narrative about who he is. But I really think this really appeared more like trauma to me trauma and then also relationship trauma whatever's going on for them and just he ends up being in the middle of it and now is the center of attention even more if if we didn't want if if the if the dynamic was like you suggested sort of in the beginning that not to have him be the center of attention well (laughs) he is that didn't really didn't really work out. I I I feel for everyone in the situation, honestly, and I know that the media is actually going back and forth between uh, vilifying Jada and vilifying Will. I want to, if it's okay, I have a, a quick uh, snapshot here of, of something he said about his father in an article from 2021. We'll end on that. Yeah. Okay, and maybe another way to look at this, if we really want to complete, like complete the circle here, is that he could have also been looking at Chris Rock, like his father because he says as an adult he found himself wanting revenge during a time that his father needed him the most one night as i delicately wheeled him from his bedroom toward the bathroom a darkness arose within me he explains the path between the two rooms goes past the top of the stairs as a child i'd always told myself that i would one day avenge my mother that's when i was big enough when i was strong enough when i was no longer a coward i would slay him smith recalls knowing that he could have gotten away with the crime I paused at the top of the stairs. I could have shoved him down and easily get away with it, he writes. I'm Will Smith. No one would ever believe I killed my father on purpose. I'm, the one, I'm one of the best actors in the world. My 911 call would be an Academy Award level. As the decades of pain, anger, and resentment cursed then receded, I shook my head and proceeded to wheel Daddio to the bathroom. Yeah, I've heard his memoir is excellent. So... Deep stuff there. Deep stuff. A lot more to be revealed, I'm sure, in the future. Thank you so much for listening to our discussion on this. We're going to be right back, and we're going to switch gears. We're going to pivot to our movie movie and book watches, and then, of course, the answers to trivia. We'll be right back. talk books movies and shenanigans <laughs> and trivia <laughs> on horror facts with gath so here we go we are going to start with our latest completion in the book club and Christ. that book is called manhunt and it's by gretchen felker martin so that's a hyphenate and you will see on amazon it's rated five stars or almost five stars there's only 84 ratings though so that means a lot of people aren't reading it but but that the people that are are enjoying it and then there's goodreads and it's also got like a four a four star a solid 4.01 Uh, rating with 972 ratings which isn't a lot for goodreads but what you can tell is that a lot of people are enjoying this book so let me just tell you a little bit i'm not going to tell you too much about it because i couldn't find a really particularly good I, i couldn't find a good description but Manhunt is a timely, powerful response to every gender-based apocalypse story that failed to consider the existence of transgender and non-binary people from a powerful new voice in horror. So basically what happens is Beth and Fran spend their nights traveling the ravaged New England coast, hunting feral men and harvesting their organs in a gruesome effort to ensure that they'll never face the same fate. So that's like the the bottom of it. And then they meet this guy, Robbie and everybody in the book, practically, I would say like 80% of the people in the book are transgendered. And so some of that comes up, but it's, it's, it's known as sort of a splatterpunk situation. So there's a lot of grotesque stuff and splatterpunk is kind of the genre or the subgenre, I should say. Mm-hmm. That said, we read it for our book club later on today. We'll be having a book club conversation with our book club so if you want to join our book club all you have to do is be a patron and then join the discord and we do a live voice chat when we finish a book and every week we do little casual chats about the book along the way 
What did you feel about this book, Kathy? <laughs> she asks, <clears throat> ducking behind the bookcase. Oh, okay, so let me start with this disclaimer. Sex, violence, grotesque stuff, that does not turn me off. Um, I can handle that. Sometimes I think it's done really well. So that's not my issue with the book. Because people might think it was. Yeah, yeah, because it is It is very Oh, there's a lot explicit. of stuff that makes you want to vomit. <laughs> yeah, it's very explicit. And when that's used correctly, it can actually be quite effective. Yeah, um, you, a well-placed gross out, of yeah. course, is really well done. So the biggest issue, two, the two biggest issues I had with this, well, I'm going to say three. The first is uh, I didn't care about any of the characters. Uh, and there are also too many characters that, I couldn't keep track of who was on what side, who was cisgender female, who was a transgender female. And it matters in this book because the cisgendered females are trying to take out the trans females because they don't believe that they are actually women. And, and everybody's afraid of men in this book because men have become feral. Men have become feral. And so it's like, you know, they're going around literally pulling the pants down of, of women to make sure they don't still have a penis. So there's like, at one point, I, I read this out loud. I said this out loud to myself on like the last page of the book. I'm like, who the hell's this? She's still introducing new characters. Like up until like the last three pages of yeah, the book, the there was like chapter. a woman named Kate or something. I'm like, who's this now? <laughs> so by the time the book is over, I, I want to say there's cl- upwards of 18 characters all having, you know, uh, traditionally female names. There's one trans male. He's really easy to follow because his name's Robbie, mm-hmm. but no one was incredibly likable. It almost felt like everyone felt feral to me. So there wasn't any emotion behind, I wasn't really pulling for everyone kind of annoyed me. And then the last thing, the third thing I'll say is, and I can't, I am not trans, so I can't speak for the trans community, but I do treat people on my caseload who do uh, identify as transgender. And I'm not sure if this would have been offensive to them. I think there are some very like myopic and, and just, I don't know, like the way that the trans community is, and, and, I, and maybe it's because it's apocalyptic and it's not necessarily because they're trans, but in this book, it almost seems like the only way they communicate or relate or love or attach is through constant grotesque sex. And I know that for me as a gay woman, I have a difficult time when people talk about the LGBTQ community, people say, well, we don't, you know, it's not necessary to talk about sexual orientation or we don't need to talk about that, that young. They'll say, make comments like that. This is coming up like in Florida and all the, the don't say gay. And my reaction to that is why is it that we always go to the bedroom in our minds when we think about sexual orientation or, or gender identity? It's like, it's bigger than just who we fuck. Mm-hmm. And so now my disclaimer to that is I have heard from trans, uh, trans clients of mine. They will say one of them actually said it this week, which I thought was ironic because I was reading this book is she feels like an outsider in her community because she does feel that a lot of the trans community does connect through sex and that sometimes they feel like only with one another will they find that because they at times feel like a pariah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this is her experience. I'm not speaking for the whole trans community. So I clearly don't know if it would be offensive or not, but I read it a little offensively. Um, and then, you know, sh- this writer is, um, I'm assuming this is coming from a very feminist place, but I don't know. Feminism also doesn't mean just hating men. So, there was yeah. just a lot of... So I just had, I don't know. And so it was just a confusing read for me and it left me like, Ugh, I don't, this was not good. Okay. Yeah. yeah I would have, I don't know. I probably would have DNF'd it if we weren't reading it for, for the book sure. club. And I think a lot of, a couple of the members of our book club that I've spoken to already are uh, of varying degrees of drama about this book like Mm -hmm. hysterical about how horrible it is but also then just hating it and really just feeling like the writer is a pretty bad writer yeah and that that made it worse so because what i hear in what you're saying is like there is the issue of 
was the hot topic dealt with in a in a in a way where we could all learn something or what have you. Yeah, it just felt like shock value. Right. And so and I would say to that too that it's 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 tough because right. when you have a hot topic like that, is it on the author to make it to make it that. In right. other words, right. like was that her responsibility? Why why is or that their responsibility? responsibility? Yeah. Why is that their responsibility to make it in any way palatable or message driven? You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Except for in this book, it did appear to be message driven because of the black and white nature of the right. different things that they were representing. So it was that confusing thing, like, okay, am I supposed, am I supposed to get to, something yeah, from this? Totally. It's sort of set up like I'm supposed to be getting something from this, but actually I'm not getting anything from this. Except, of course, grossed out and, mm-hmm. and all of that. The other piece of this, I think, is the bad writing piece. Ugh. So that's where I tend to err more on, like, I can discuss that more because mm-hmm. people can be offended by a lot of different things. Sure. And I, yeah. one of the things I guess on that, in that camp that I would say is that there are so many ways that the author could make this book at least emotionally resonant. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways I felt like they could do that is to lean into all of the loss along the way instead of just at the end. Mm-hmm. They lean into it a little bit at the end. Like the last 10 pages. It, and Yeah, and by end we mean like the last minute. If they had leaned into the fact that you actually have a world where every ma- cisgendered male that you know is now a rabid dog mm-hmm. and would rather rape you and kill you than speak like literally the most primitive and there and there are trigger warnings for rape there are trigger warnings Mm -hmm. for a lot of things in this book it's pretty disgusting (laughs) Mm -hmm. but that's part of its you know charm i guess to the people that like it right like that's just part of what they're doing as an author but you lose every male in your life you don't think that all of these transgendered people or at least 75 percent of them didn't have males in their life that they now miss and were supportive and mm-hmm. loving to them mm-hmm. and now they're just rabid dogs yeah with no meaning with no meaning yeah like it didn't make any sense to no. me i kept waiting for the emotional content of what this world would be like right so that's one piece the other piece is of course I had some expectations. I was kind of excited, you know, with our book club, we, the person whose turn it is pitches three or four books and then we all vote. And when I read about this book, I was like, ah, that would be so great. It's something different. I mean, that's awesome. I would love to hear a different POV and you know, all of the press was another, a new voice in horror, blah, blah, blah. So I was like excited. And so my expectations got in the way as well. So I'm willing to cop to that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, However, unfortunately, my editor hat got turned on pretty early and I really hate when that happens. I'm very good. Generally speaking, 90% of the time I'm very good at turning that off with movies, with books, with all of that. And what ended up happening is that the beginning, I didn't mind so much Mm -hmm. Fran and Beth and all the way up until then, when they meet Robbie, Mm -hmm. I was on board. Me too. People were bitching and yeah. moaning as but we, I was, as okay. we I was, do. I was but somewhat I was like, okay with it. I was like, mm-hmm. all right. Like, I could actually see myself being interested in what happens to these three people. Right. There, It starts out violent. Like, there's a lot of action right out of the gate. I was like, oh, this isn't bad. I like the action right out of the gate. I like this. So that's where I was in the very beginning. Others had different opinions about, like, hating it from, you know, word one. But I didn't. I liked it until they met Robbie. And between when they met Robbie and those last 10 pages that I thought were done pretty well, they weren't meaningful because we hadn't been talking about it for 300 pages. It was just like, if I could do the first 30 pages in the last 10, we'd have a nice little, well, and <laughs> nice I can, little book. I can say from Robbie to those last 10 pages, I don't know who 75% of the people are. So that's one of the big things is it's like, here, here so here's my... I don't know how constructive it is, but I want to say constructive criticism. My thought is, is that with an editor, a lot of this would have been solved, hopefully. But my thought is the reason why everyone's reacting to the 45 different characters is because what they did was, is they went all the way to the macro view of things. And without, without the skills to build an epic. So lots of authors build epic tales and, 
do it very, very well. And there's 55,000 characters, you know, the Game of Thrones books and mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings books and all but of that. it's built over time. And those are even still hard to follow. Yeah, but they're and also built over many, many books. That's right. And they're very, very competent, like learned, and they have editors and yeah. all of this, right? They have yeah. a lot of support to get it to that place. I wanted that story of those three people to be represented all the way throughout the book, especially if you're going to have the ending that they had. Yes. Which I'm not going to spoil. Yeah. But you can tell by the way we're talking about it is that they talked about them in the beginning and they talked about them in the end. In other words, they got micro in the beginning to set up the character, main characters and all the synopses mm -hmm. talk about how those are the main characters. And then they address it at the very end. Yeah. And it's emotional at the end. There's an emotional scene. That's it what, was well done. That's and I was, was like, I was like, where were these where, people the whole fucking book? Where was this feeling? Yes. For the last 200 pages. A good editor could take this work and work those, the character arc and the plot arc and have them go through an emotional journey that would have been a darker new take on the post-apocalyptic world that was more splatterpunk and definitely airs on the grotesque. I mean, you have a book where transgendered females are eating the balls of men in order to keep their estrogen down or no, to keep their testosterone down, right? Something like that. So that they don't, so that they are not, uh, they don't have, uh, so that they have more estrogen, something like that. Yeah, it was also to survive, too. To survive, yeah. of course, to mm -hmm. eat. But there was a reason why they were, they're trying to ingest estrogen. Well, and the licorice root was for that, too. That's right. The so licorice there was all this, root, yeah. But so, she doesn't, or they, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know how the author identifies. They don't really explain any of that. No. It's just inferred, and you have to guess. That's why I'm um, so confused about it still, and I read the book. Right. So, a <laughs> lot of issues, and I think the, the idea... The idea was there, um, and it, like you said, it could have turned into something much more emotional, and it just felt like a mess. Mm -hmm. It did. And I think sometimes people, even the ratings on this, I look at it and I go, are these people that just really want to be like, yeah, I'm glad it was offensive and it was so good that it was, you know, because I look at it and I go, what did, what did people get from this? I don't even understand yeah. the story. Yeah. I read a lot of the reviews too. And of yeah. course some of them are like, Hey, you know, they're pre pre read reviews. A lot of people on Goodreads, you know, they give away their, I've had several friends who are authors, you know, they give away books and they have mm -hmm. everybody they know and everybody that supports them do reviews. And that's really important because you want to get a lot of reviews in the beginning so that you can start to get ratings. So you can yeah. start to have people buy your book. So there's that piece and there aren't enough readings on there honestly to know that that piece doesn't matter anymore yeah and then there are a lot of people saying negative things of course that are starting to read it and there's like a balance and then there's people accusing everybody of not liking the book because it's transgender right and, and that's what i'm saying that's know, the that. obvious right like it, yeah. if you if and i think pepper had said something like that like if you don't like the story it's because you're you're transphobic and it's yeah. like no that no, is no, no, that, no, no. that that is <laughs> incredibly heuristic read the book it has nothing that had nothing to do with it for me i was actually looking forward to that part right so our our next book is the exorcist uh, yes yay and i've already started reading it <laughs> yeah i'll start tonight yeah so there's that so what's next um so i would like to just announce i'm i'm so proud of my friend so my my really really good friend from detroit rob holland he goes by rob e as as director name he has been doing short films for a little while. He's one of my Blockbuster buddies. We met working at Blockbuster Video. He put out uh, a 30-minute short this year, uh, or in 2021, called Project Horror. That's been to a number of film festivals in the Detroit area. And um, it's, not it's not yet... Um, widely released for everybody to to view but he did send me the link and i i watched it yesterday and it is a lot of fun it the project tour is a short film that follows the events of a horrific night agents arrive to the scene and speak to a survivor in hopes of being able to understand what happened and solve this horrific um mystery so it's really fun i think it takes a lot of the 90s scream and Blair Witch and all of that kind of together but in a really um if you are a horror buff you're going to really appreciate 
what he did with this film. Oh, good. Um, so it sinks into the genre. It sinks into the genre. It, nice. it It's an homage to a lot of slashers and, and just urban legends. He, um, just to give a little bit of credits where credits do, they won the audience choice best film in the film. Wow. Let me try that again. The audience choice best film in the Flint film showcase they won the People's Choice Award for the ICU Awards, and he won Best First Time Director in the Vesuvius International Film Festival, and a lot of other stuff that they've won, and they continue to screen it. And once, I think it's out, he said they're in festival season right now. Once it's out, then it'll be available for people to stream. So if you want to support him, you can go to uh, Instagram, just go at, to, at Project Horror, and you can find the site, and there's a lot of news on there, and you can follow him there. He also does an another show called attack on show which is um on youtube and instagram as well and they are basically they they are really funny duo and and just um critique a lot of films on there and and rob's got a great sense of humor i'm just like really really proud of him because uh, it's edited well it looks great i remember when we were using like our tiny little cameras and and you know shooting back in the day so um check it out i'm really proud of him nice awesome I watched a movie called Hilarious, Hilarious, 2019. <laughs> it was a blue recommendation, actually. We just finished our April was Women's History Month, so I did a challenge on our Discord for that, and we just finished it up. And so what's great about that is I get to see what everybody else watches for the items. And so one of the items that Blue watched that she was surprised you know, surprisingly very, very positive about was this movie called Hilarious 2019 and introducing Hilarious, a once in a lifetime feature collection. So it's an anthology. Now, anthologies can be really hit or miss, right? Like some of them will suck. Some of the short films will suck. Some of them will be good. And I thought this one was really good. Now, I watched it because it completed the Ellie Church item who is an actress that was on the list of women to find a movie from. It's a horror comedy anthology. You're always looking for like, will there be more hits than misses type of thing? And there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I'm counting all the movies in this. Yeah, eight of them in here. There's no wraparound with this. You know, a lot of anthologies will have a wraparound story that's sort of in the beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. So you have a through line, and then all of them address that. This doesn't have that. It's more like chapters in a in an anthology. But it was such a solid lineup of comedy of horror comedy shorts. I just really enjoyed it, and I would recommend it. And Blue is correct. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. And just to give you an idea, was it hell areas? Yeah, it was. <laughs> the just to give you an idea, the very first one is called Killer Cart, and it's basically a grocery cart that has teeth. <laughs> and you know how I love that. I've watched the sofas and the couches. Oh yeah, and all killer of the sofa things that exactly. And this one is pretty great in that way. Well, I'm going to compliment that with a couple of things that one, you had me watch and two, I'm going to throw something at you to watch in response to this garbage that you had me watch. Good. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, Shannon said, you need to watch Mansquito. <laughs> so I, first of all, Corey Nemeth from Parker Lewis can't lose. He's like the main guy in it, which I thought was so funny. I'm like, look at that. It's Corey Nemeth. Um, this was something Mansquito. It attempts to be the fly, but you know, the effects are not all that bad That's considering, <laughs> okay? Considering it could have been a lot worse. Oh, yeah. But I have to say, my favorite scene was at the very end where he's, he's taking out the officers in the hospital. There's that scene I was laughing. It's hilarious. Out loud. I mean, it's just ridiculous. I mean, it's not supposed to be hilarious, but it's so hilarious. It's so hilarious. That's why I enjoyed it. I laughed the whole yeah, time. It was, it's worth like a fun watch. Oh, for sure. So I'm going to meet that with and challenge you to watch a movie called Ice Spiders. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, sorry. Of course you have. Ah, sorry. <laughs> it's on Tubi if people haven't seen it. It is so bad. <laughs> First of all, it's, um, yep. oh my God, so Patrick Muldoon. 
Okay. <laughs> he must have gotten this because of Starship Troopers. That's the oh, only thing probably. I can think of. A team of young winter Olympic hopefuls must slalom to safety when a horde of giant mutated spire, spiders spin their way out of a top secret laboratory. Now, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, there's a thing, is there? <laughs> Mansquito actually had good effects. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's actually surprising enough. Not Ice bad. spiders looked like an editing machine that I used in my high school <laughs> media class. That it was like um, they weren't. They didn't even create the puppetry. They they created some like computer image and then threw it on the film. So the actors were probably running from nothing. It wasn't even like sophisticated like a green screen. So it was like this little, almost looked like an Atari game running across the screen, these spiders. Yeah. Yeah, it's from 2007. So if you know anything about that decade of horror, just keep that in mind. And my review of it was only two stars, which means I'll never watch it again, like on purpose. But I did say it's so 2007 is what I wrote. And I wrote and ridiculous and just what I needed today. It was like a day where it was like, watching a bad horror movie was like on the docket and it fulfilled that purpose. That's probably why I gave it two stars instead of much lower is because I wanted a ridiculously bad horror movie on that day. And as you know, guys like that, that impacts your reviews of things, right? Like if you're in the mood for that, if you were in the mood for hereditary, this is not this, that's not your day. Exactly. <laughs> this is, this is the spider I'm talking about Shannon. So it's a green spider attack. First of all, I don't know why he'd be this color. Oh yeah. The, yeah. Oh yeah. Green. I, I'm like, did they not do the green screen work? I, it's they so just bad. Kept it green. And there was a yellow one. <laughs> I yeah, know. neon colored spiders. Oh my god! And then the webbing just looked like like the the stuff you buy f- for from for Halloween that you decorate in the house. Yeah, I mean like the most epic trash. But if you know anything about this guy, I think it's pronounced Tibor Tak Takas. I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, he does all this weird shit. <laughs> Ice Spiders, Mosquito Man, which I've also seen. He, uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch, I think he did an episode of that. I know he did Sabrina Goes to Rome, which was like these movies that were done right after Sabrina the Teenage Witch, the series from the 90s. Rats, uh, Kraken, you know, and <laughs> Mega Snake. I mean, this is, you know. But he also does like a Christmas Miracle Harmar Yeah, of course he does. So... <laughs> Why wouldn't he? And some other, there's some other Christmas movies that he's done. So I just want to say like, thank you for watching some some trash. And I'm sorry that I had already seen it. You'll have to find some other trash that you're going to curse me with. (laughs) Anytime, anytime, bring it. We'll watch it. Actually, Kathy's going to curate an evening uh, in April in our discord. She's going to pick a couple movies that are streaming and she's going to host so there it is. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Do you do we want to go over the answers? I was trying to avoid that. Okay. I'm just kidding. Yeah, go ahead. Well, one of them is sure. our a Discord member. I wouldn't want to diss I wouldn't want to diss the Discord. Okay. Number 1. And you have to guess which one again is I know. I I'm not till the end. I I'm, right. Mm-hmm. This horror director is also an accomplished composer. Their unique musical style is often credited as the inspiration for an entirely new subgenre of music. This director is also known for making comic books. Well, I mean, Tim Burton is the first come person that comes to mind. And then I was like, does Danny Elfman do comic books? I don't know. It's actually John Carpenter. Oh, okay. Because he did the, that's a good guess though. He did the music the score for, for Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Number two, music in horror films is strategic. Some composers may refer to it as where math meets music, high pitch nonlinear noise and dissonant intervals generate feelings of unease. Low drone sound and singing children uh, are two others. Historically, these have been referred to as A, the devil's interval, B, Satan's soliloquy, or C, horror hymns. And I'm supposed to just guess which one? Mm-hmm. Um, devil's interval. Correct. Boom, boom, boom. Number three. <laughs> this film by David Lynch, which was originally titled Garden Back and was a surrealist story about adultery. Uh, I think it's Eraserhead. It is. Okay. Yeah. Number four. <laughs> Do you know that David Lynch, when that movie was being filmed, he slept in that janky hotel room? Like, that's what. Ugh. 
That that's really such a depressing movie. <laughs> he doesn't surprise me, but why just because of who he was? I know. I don't know. Why did Romero shoot Night of the Living Dead in black and white? Well, of course, I want to say because it was cheap, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I don't know. So, yes, despite the belief that it was simply about the ability to use chocolate syrup for blood and that <laughs> made it cheaper, he also believed it made the film more gruesome. For real. And and uh, and it's just cheaper to shoot on black and white film. For sure. Like, period. So. I think it would have been a different. That's why a lot of students do it. Different film if it would have been in color. Oh, my gosh. I'm, I don't. Yeah. I, it went, I don't mm-hmm. think it would have been as much of a classic. No. And then lastly, I agree. While filming The Wizard of Oz, 16-year-old Judy Garland was put on the, on a strict diet of what to suppress her appetite? To suppress her appetite, huh? Uh, I don't know what was I know that it was like It's abusive, let me just say. Oh. Oh no. <laughs> of course you want to go like, well did she have to drink Epicac or something? But I mean, uh, I think it's worse. I oh then I don't know because I I I know she was like you know grapefruit and cottage cheese and broth and you know like the things that they did people do to restrict their diets but that's not what you're talking about. You ready? Okay. Eighty cigarettes a day and black coffee. Yeah, there you go. For a sixteen-year-old kid. Yeah. Yeah. Horror fact for sure. Yuck. And Horror on that facts note, with <laughs> yeah, bring in the light and joy. Thank you so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. (laughs) 